0: And welcome back into the Bama Beat podcast, brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Once again, this is your host Clint Lamb sitting here once again with Brett Hudson. How are you doing this morning, Brett? I'm good, man. What's going on, man? Trying to get back to somewhat of a normal lifestyle, even though it's kind of been a weird transition. How's it been for you?
1: Um, I wouldn't say we've we've transitioned or started the transition back to normal. Yeah, I know a lot of people are, but like. Uh, our normal is different from everyone else's. Like uh, the average person ca- goes to a workplace um, daily for for their, uh, for their tasks. So when, when things go back to normal, that's their routine. We don't, we don't necessarily have a routine because we're going to different places on different days at different times. Uh, I could be going to a Alabama baseball game at 7 p.m. on a Thursday night. And then have a Nick Saban presser at 11 a.m. on Friday. Like the, we don't really have much of a routine to get to. Um, so for that reason, normal hasn't really set in for my for me yet, just because they aren't really doing those things. So we haven't we haven't tried to transition back to to normalcy around here. Although uh, I'm sure we will before long, because the the wheels are are getting in motion here for. Uh, for things to get back to, way they, to the way they were in February.
0: Yeah, and you know that's actually probably the first thing we're going to cover today on a list of topics uh, is you know Alabama announced there will be in-person classes in the fall. USC, who is Alabama's Week One opponent for the upcoming football season, they also announced that they would be having in-person classes in the fall. So it's looking like from all indications, I understand there's, you know, we're, we're not, it's not a guarantee. We're not there yet, but it's looking a lot more likely that Alabama is going to play USC in week one.
1: And, and the governor of, of Texas said earlier this week that football stadiums in the state can now host events up to 50% capacity. Um, so if the game were played tomorrow, Alabama and USC would play in front of a 50 percent capacity at uh, at Jerry World in, in Arlington. I don't know how they would set up the seating arrangement or how they would uh, divvy up the tickets to people that bought tickets, assuming there were going to be like 80,000 of them available. And now there are only 40,000. I don't know how they would uh, divide that up. I guess it's possible that they go to 75 percent or full capacity in between now and the time that game kicks off, but but you're right. The the fact that Alabama and USC have both committed to having in person classes in the fall semester does make it more likely that that game is is played and played uh, when it's supposed to be played on September 5th. And and much like student athletes coming back to campus right around now in the first week of June, this was a necessary step that, that had to be taken. Like, and I realize that there were some. Administrators and athletic leadership coaches, whoever it may have been, university presidents possibly that kind of insinuated that they could play football if all students weren't on campus. Like if, if students weren't on campus, they could still play football and, and conduct other athletic activities. But considering the federal government is jumping down the NCAA's throat for a complete lack of compensation for its student-athletes. It, it seems like it would be heinously bad optics for the NCAA to say, or, or for universities in this case, to say uh, regular students, like academic students, cannot be on our campus. We don't think it's safe. But it's totally fine for student-athletes to be on campus and practice and go play a game against people from across the country and, and people that they don't get exposed to every day. That's that's totally fine. But a regular academic students being on campus, that's not safe. I, I would imagine that with, again, the federal government jumping down their throats about giving players compensation based on their name, image, and likeness, it'd be a really bad optic to do something like that. The, the obvious counterpoint to that is, given all of the cringeworthy things that the NCAA and some of its member institutions have said and done over the past 10 years or so can lead one to believe that they don't really care all that much about optics or they aren't swayed by them for better or for worse.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, and, and for anybody get grabs in when I can, you know, well for anybody that was kind of confused as far as why students needed to be on campus for football to happen, because I've seen a lot of people, out there who have said you know i don't i don't understand why students have to be on campus well you know it's for that very reason uh, that you just said and i think it's an excellent point this was necessary steps and, and now we're starting to get to that point with where things are heading granted and we'll be talking about this here in just a few minutes with the covid 19 and players reporting and play players uh testing positive for covid 19 but um You know, As of right now, it's really starting to look like that college football is going to happen, and not only is it going to happen, it's going to happen on time. As of right now, it looks that way. I'll continue to reiterate that, and we actually might have, at least for some games, fans in the stands, at least a number, maybe not full capacity. In fact, I would highly doubt it was going to be at full capacity, Um, but you know, any number of fans, 50%, that would be incredible. 40,000 people can still make a difference as far as crowd noise, as far as, you know, momentum factors and things like that to, to at least give some sense of normalcy as far as watching the game and being at the game. And then on top of that, if you're like the Atlanta Falcons and you want to pump in a little bit of artificial crowd noise on top of your fans to make it a little bit louder, you can still do that and and really give it more of a, a realistic uh, full capacity kind of environment or at least make it seem that way. So I'm really excited because it seems like at different points throughout the offseason, it's been like, is college football going to happen at all? Then you start realizing the financial implications if it doesn't happen. So you start looking at, okay, it's probably going to happen, but is it going to be in empty stadiums? Is it going to start later? Is it going to be a spring thing? Are they going to have to divide it over two uh, semesters? I mean, there were so many things being thrown around, and then we start getting back to a point where it's like, okay, we think it's actually going to, Start on time, potentially. Okay, we might actually have fans there. Okay, it might seem like we're not going to have to adjust schedules because a lot of teams, uh, you know, like the state of California, a lot of their schools, they were worried that they weren't going to open up their stuff. Michigan, I don't know if there's been any updates with Michigan because they're not on Alabama schedule, and I haven't kept up with it as much. But, um, you know, there was some worry that maybe they wouldn't be on board with bringing stuff back. And you know, Let's not act like a college
1: football championship picture would be at all altered if Michigan did or did not play.
0: According to, to Jim Harbaugh, they are liter- they are as close as they could possibly be to a national championship, despite the fact they've lost on average of four games per season over the course of the last three seasons. But the
1: scores uh, of Jim, the Ohio State games disagree.
0: Yeah, uh, there's it's a lot of things agree. statistically and and from that that completely disagree with Jim with what Jim Harbaugh said, and that's what makes it that's a whole topic for another day. Uh, ridiculous no, no, statement. he got
1: beat by uh, wait. Ooh. I may have just stumbled on a hot take here. Was last year's team the worst of the decade? It's either that or 2010, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it would have to be.
1: Um, In any event, his team just got beat by one of the worst Alabama teams of the decade.
0: Yeah, that's
1: Or, or at least the one that had the worst win one of the worst win loss records. And it was
0: pretty sound, too. They did play it close. <laughs> like, for the.
1: And that's not the point of the conversation. I'm not, I'm not actually saying that that was the worst team of, of the decade. I'm, I'm just saying you caught one of the two teams of Alabama's decade that didn't have a legitimate chance at the national championship. And you weren't really, like, ultra competitive with them. Like, it was close for a while. Don't get me wrong. But push came to shove in the fourth quarter. I don't know that with, with with ten minutes left in the game. Do you think there was a reasonable Michigan fan that thought they were going to win that game? And did you think? Do you think there was a reasonable Alabama game, fan that thought they were going to lose that game?
0: Anybody on either side that was watching Shea Patterson should have known at that point in time <laughs> the game was absolutely over. <laughs> right. Right. That's that's a,
1: a a tangent to kind of veer us back on subject. By the way, you mentioned the. Uh, pumping in the, the fake crowd noise. Alabama does have a little experience in that when it comes to a little ditty they play in the in the fourth quarter talking about spending my dollar on beer. just a little yeah. experience in, in that. But anyway, to your to your point about people and the concept of playing football when students aren't on campus logistically like strictly logistically yes it's it's very possible you can if if no students are on campus thus all the dorms are empty you can spread all of your fall and winter sport athletes across all of the dorms on campus or in the apartments if they so choose and you can conduct your classes in a way that is very social distancing friendly set friendly consistent testing um Differences in the practice protocol and locker room decorum and and things like that, like strictly logistically, yes, you could play football if no students were on campus. But again, it goes back to the optics of the thing and the I, I think optics really is the best word for it. Like if if you're deeming your campus unsafe for the average tuition paying student. It is very hard to justify the presence and somewhat normal operations of athletes. And, yes, you could justify it from a financial perspective that the the students, athletes, in almost all cases, are the best revenue generators that the university has outside of tuition. Right. Like that is the best revenue generator that a university has. And it's definitely the front porch. Of the university, as as people like to say. So you could justify it from that aspect. But again, uh, if you're if you're protecting tuition paying academic students from being on your campus, you have you can't justify not doing the same for your athletes. So logistically, you could do it. But the optics of the of the situation make it really, really difficult to play football while students aren't on campus.
0: And here's the thing, um, you know, regardless for the people who, you know, say that a college education uh, should be more than enough compensation. And that's an argument for another day. I'm not going to try to get too much into it. But one thing about this whole pandemic situation with COVID-19 is that it's pulled back the curtain and really revealed, you know, from a number standpoint in comparison to a lot of different things, just how important college football is. To college universities. And, you know, when you start realizing, you know, if, if you go a season without, even for a university like Alabama, could they withstand it and, and ultimately end up being fine? Yes. But the financial implications... as far as as slowing down, you know, the progress they're making as far as building new uh, academic buildings, as far as funding other programs, you might have started to see other sports have to go away because the funds weren't there uh, or available. You know, you really start to realize the the money that they're actually making these universities and the NCAA and, and everything else, it's substantial compared to what they're making and, and the college education is still great. Don't get me wrong. At least, you know, they can get out of school, not having student loans. I think that's a problem that most of us deal with out here in the real world. And it's, it's a very tough problem to deal with it. The student loans are not fun. So that's awesome. But you know, in comparison to what they're actually making universities and stuff, I, I don't think it really compares, but that, like I said, that's an argument for a different day. Um, but what is, is interesting, uh,
1: actually, actually, can I say one more thing on that subject? And again, not to like, break break open the whole can of worms, but I, I, I'm, I'm asking the listener a question here because I've thought about this some but not enough to say it definitively, so I'm going to pose it to the listener and have the listener educate me on where I'm wrong. I can't think of anywhere else in the American economy where we don't compensate people for their skills than in college athletics. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, the, the,
0: uh, interesting. I mean, I, I mean, guess the. Uh, I don't get
1: uh, you on the spot, and I've, I've had hours to think about this, and, and I can't come up with a with a solution. But I I really cannot think of anywhere else in the American economy where we don't compensate people a market value for their skills.
0: The only thing that I could point to, and it's just because, you know, people are probably going to be trying to come up with something to stump you. This isn't to stump you. In fact, this is relatively small in comparison. But, you know, there are a lot of universities that put on, um, you know, they have researchers who are studying to do certain things. And the research teams there can end up, you know, there's been times that college students have come up with uh, not necessarily cures for stuff, but really made advancements when it comes to research and, and technology and things like that and helping with certain things. Uh, maybe they don't, I don't know if they get paid though. I couldn't say whether they do or they don't. That would be the only situation. And the fact that I'm not sure on that, and that is the only example I could possibly come up with proves your point, regardless of if it's a, a you know something that you could point to or not. Right. Well, well like I
1: said, that's that's a question for the listener. Like, find me somewhere else in the American economy where people are not paid a market value for their skill. Uh, I I genuinely want to know because I've thought about this a lot and I can't find a spot. So I'm I'm hoping someone can fill in my, my blind
0: spot. Okay. Next topic, please. Which is, you know, we're heading in the right direction with college football. Uh, It seems like it's going to happen, but I was worried, and I think we I don't know if it, if I talked about it on my radio show or if it was me and you or if I've done a little bit of both.
1: It was but. probably both, but we definitely discussed on the last podcast or or a recent one, how what we're about to discuss was more or less
0: inevitable. Yes, okay. And that's what I was trying to remember. You're exactly right. Anybody that expected Alabama players or players at any university to for them to bring in a 100 different guys and for none of them to test positive or maybe just like one case, it was bound to happen that at least a few players. And and I, as more teams start reporting this, you're going to see this creep up a lot, a heck of a lot. And Oklahoma State was someone that's already said that some of their players have tested positive. Ole Miss has a staff uh, person. There's one player who was on campus already. There was another who was not on campus who got tested. Um, so that makes three for them. I think Iowa State is another program that's already announced that they have uh, at least one positive case. So Arkansas you would, have eight. Say what? Arkansas State had oh, more. I, Yeah. Okay. So, and see, it's going to, because there's just no way all of these people were out in society and they were going to the grocery store and they were doing things. And I guarantee you a lot of these college athletes were taking precautions. And so this didn't just because they have, have it does not mean they were being irresponsible. They could have gotten around somebody that they really trusted who had gone to the grocery store, contracted it, and then given it to them. We just don't know. Um, But the only thing that I can point to, and, and we'll go ahead and kind of break down the news five Alabama players Uh, have apparently tested positive for having the coronavirus. They are asymptomatic, so they're not having any kind of trouble with it. As of right now, uh, as far as I know, none of the people who have tested positive at any university that I know of uh, is having any actual issues with it. In fact, I don't think anyone even knew they had it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have even reported uh, to get tested. The only thing that I'm concerned about was, and this was strictly voluntary, I want to put this out there because... You know, this was not mandatory by the coaching staff or anybody else. This was strictly the players wanted to get back around each other, start building relationships. Uh, You know, they had been, you know, quarantined like the rest of us for several months. But there was, I think, up to 50 players who were kind of participating in some kind of thing on the soccer field, if I'm not mistaken, throwing the football Uh, around. I know there were offensive line workouts on the Million Dollar band field. Yeah, it was the band field, not the soccer field. That's, that's correct. And then you had the the video of Bryce Young throwing the touchdown pass to Jalen Waddell, which was a right. beautiful pass, by the way. Um, but, you know, like I, I'll reiterate, this was all these guys want to do this on their own. I probably would have preferred, if I would have been the coaching staff, to say, hey, let's get people tested before we start doing these massive things where several people are around each other. And then we can start getting, you You know, if, if you don't have it, you're staying and doing the, the proper things from that point. But here's the thing. We know that these guys have it. And let me go ahead and tell you some areas where this actually helps. These are players that if if they weren't allowed to be back on campus, they would be back in their hometowns or back wherever they were staying, having the coronavirus, spreading it to other people, not knowing that they had it. So them getting on campus now, what they're going to be able to do is do the contact tracing all the way back through their families. Their families are now going to need to get tested, and you can actually start to limit what would have been you know, uh, a lot of, in the grand scheme of all of college football teams and how actual, actually many kids end up having it before it's all said and done. You're probably cutting out a substantial portion of people who had it and going ahead and heading it off and trying to get those guys right. That's a positive from this. The other thing, too, everything that I know about COVID-19, it's normally like a two-week deal. Um, Now, I don't know if there's been any advancements in that or if we know any more. But if that's the case, you're talking about by the end of June, all the players who are testing positive right now uh, should be over it. And that's actually a good thing because now you're talking about, God, I don't know if you can recontract it. I don't know if they've determined that. But uh, the immunity factor to it, people are saying that's pretty important. And you don't have to worry about the, this kind of out, like Oklahoma's waiting until July 1st. Well, now all of these players for the next month, if there is anybody on the Oklahoma football team who contracts it, you can put, because I think it takes up to 14 days to start showing symptoms. Um, and it's, if it's only supposed to last two weeks, then you know that, if they are testing positive, they probably had gotten it within the last month. And you can sit there and say if they would have been on campus getting tested, they probably don't get it. So it could actually make Oklahoma look worse that they're not bringing guys back. And they're trying to do it safely. Uh, this is for you know their concern of the health and, and safety of the players, and I get that. But it's just another way to look at all this. Um, but there are some positive aspects of this, and I don't think people need to be overreacting and acting like there won't be a college football season because something happened that we all knew was going to happen.
1: Well, I mean, I think it – once, like we mentioned on the last pod, this – players being tested positive for for COVID was a, a borderline guarantee and that has manifested itself in several places across the nation, geography uh, not being a relevant factor there. What impacts how much or if any impact this has on the 2020 college football season is what the schools do from here, uh, What how they quarantine the players, how they handle the testing processes, and everything else. And as we mentioned on the previous pod when we talked about this, these schools are obviously very, 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 motivated to play the football season in its entirety as it's currently scheduled. Because as we mentioned on the previous topic, that is hundreds of millions of dollars in some, at in some cases, obviously the group of five level, you get down to the tens of millions of dollars. And I, I which I say that like a chump change. Um, but for, for Alabama, it kind of is, but some of these schools are getting hundreds of millions of dollars from playing a college football season. And they're, they're highly motivated to, to secure that bag, if you will. So uh, as long as they kind of have have the bullseye where it's supposed to be and they, what they're doing is medically sound to get their locker rooms free of the coronavirus, then everything will be fine. And, and I guess we'll find out which schools were doing it right and which schools weren't when we find out in mid-July that x school who had three covid cases today still has three or four covid cases in mid-july that's that's how we'll know who was not doing it right and who was because there's enough time in between now and the middle of july when there's reportedly some uh proposed instructional time with coaches which nick saban has been very much in favor of When that time comes around, you should be free of the coronavirus if you've done everything right. And I I guess we'll find out that way who's who's doing it right and who's not. But that's what is going to get us
0: college football when we're supposed to get it. That's a fantastic point. The most – it's not what just happened. That's not the important piece of news as far as finding out that players have it. It's what happens from here that's going to determine – if there's a college football season or how different the college football season is going to be. And from all indications, I mean, you got Patrick Sertan, uh senior, uh, former NFL defensive back who, you know, of course his son is, is one of the star players for Alabama. And, you know, there's a story about him uh, saying that he was kind of reluctant to let his son go back to Alabama's campus until he got a really good feel for Um, what it was that Alabama was doing as far as from from a preventative measure uh, measures and things like that. And he felt comfortable enough after hearing what Alabama has in place to fight this thing and to prevent it to send his son back to campus. And I don't think that that's something that's getting enough attention. It wasn't just a matter of you know, with the NFL or with the uh, Major League Baseball or the NBA, those are professional athletes who are out there making their own decisions. If they want to play, they can play. But there's parents involved when it comes to college athletes. And so they're part of the uh, decision making process. I don't think people have thought of that. Maybe a player wants to play, but his parents, you know, worried about their child says, no, we're not going to let you go back. So hearing what Patrick Chartan Sr. said about, you know, uh, what Alabama has relayed to him as far as what they're doing. That it was huge news to me, and I think that that should give people a lot more confidence in uh, Alabama's and hopefully other colleges' ability to fight you know, or contain this thing and keep it from being any sort of outbreak and putting people's lives in danger. And let's also reiterate, and I'm, we're not going to get into any sort of the political side of this. There's no point. It's not going to serve any purpose, but from everything that we know— the percentage of young people under 25 years old, which are going to be every college athlete. Now you got to start worrying about coaching staffs so and Nick Saban. I think he turned 69 on uh, October nice. 31st. Uh, yeah, a, a great combination there. Halloween turned 69, but, um, you know, you got to worry about people like Nick Saban. Uh, you don't necessarily have to worry about the student athletes as much because the, the, the percentage of people who are, you know, hurt, by having COVID-19 is very low. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't take precautions or anything like that, but just, you know, there's so many factors involved here um, that that really determine how things are going to end up playing itself out. But if you don't think that Nick Saban and that the coaching staff and the medical staff and and everybody surrounding Alabama's program is not doing everything it possibly can or they possibly can to prevent this thing from getting out of control, because all it's going to take is, you know, right now, we know that a quarterback apparently has it. And apparently it's not Mac Jones because his dad was very vocal that it was not his son. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that's what if it, what, what it would have been Mac Jones? You know, how does that affect Alabama's season? Nick Saban wants to have all hands on deck for the entirety of the season. He's going to do whatever he possibly can to, to make sure that that happens. Now whether he's able to achieve that is a whole different argument. But they're going to take every step that they possibly can to make sure that they are at full Uh, health and and not only for the health and the safety of the players, which is, you know, that is very, very important. But also, you know, if you want to be competitive, you need to try to limit (laughs) who's getting COVID-19 and how it's affecting your program. So a lot of different aspects at play here.
1: Uh, I'm not going to get into the speculation of uh, how many people at what position have the virus and and whatever. All all I'm going to say is, Thank you to Mark Jennings for his excellent legal advice he was get, he gave to friend of the podcast Fluff um, and, and getting and getting Fluff through that that sticky situation with the with the Jones family. Shouts to Mark Jennings, best in the business. Shouts to my man Fluff. Um, before we go to the the break and and get to some more like roster things, after that I, I did kind of briefly in passing mention that. Uh, there's some reporting out there about some instructional time in July, and I actually kind of want to run through that very quickly for, for people that didn't see it. Uh, it's from Pete Thamel of, of Yahoo. He said the NCAA's Football Oversight Committee is working on a recommendation to hand to the D1 Council next week. Basically, it's the, the plan or the proposal is going to allow coaches to have access to players' And starting in mid-July for a little bit of instructional time. And it it would accomplish a lot of the things. But what it would ultimately do is it would give coaches six weeks of preseason camp as opposed to the four that we're accustomed to with teams typically starting around the beginning of August to start their seasons in the beginning of September. This would allow an extra two weeks of, of coach instructional period, probably limited hour weeks, not the full on preseason camp, full pads, go and add it two a days type stuff. But uh, I mean, what it would more or less do is give coaches an abbreviated spring practice session, but doing so at the end of July, as opposed to spread out through February, March and April. And this was something Nick Saban mentioned back in April and maybe even before then, too, that if if all went as well as it could have, he hoped that there could be some extra instructional time at some point in the summer to sort of replace that instructional time that you get in, in spring practice. Because the, the way he put it and the way several coaches around the country have put it is – preseason practice is what gets players in shape for the season like they don't need spring practice to condition their players the point of spring practice is to teach to instruct their their players and they would like to have that instructional time if they can get it so if that gets approved by the d1 council next week assuming this goes on the quickest possible timeline you could see players doing organized team activities with coaches starting mid to late July, as opposed to what they're doing uh, at Alabama starting on Monday, which is doing organized workouts just with the strength and conditioning staff.
0: And that's super important for people like Bryce Young and for any other true freshmen that are trying to make an impact in year one being able to get that extra instructional time with the coaching staff, it will be critical uh, to just how early certain guys can make an impact. And there are so many I could point. you know, you're talking about even uh, how how big that is for uh, transfer quarterbacks like Jamie Newman and and Georgia and and Todd Monk and a new offensive coordinator being there. And Miles Brennan, who is now the starter at LSU and their new passing game uh, coordinator in Scott Linhan. Uh, I mean, there are so many different, uh, you know, benefits of having this kind of on-hands instructional type of uh, workouts or, of you know, whatever you want to call it, practices. And so that's fantastic that they're looking to do that because I think that will help a lot of those guys who are trying to transition to new schools, whether it be from transfer or first-year players or whatever. So definitely something to keep an eye on. And I'm sure, you know, when we're talking in a future pod, once we have the, how that vote goes down and how things are kind of set up, We'll start to, uh, to talk about that a little bit more. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into Tyrell Shavers choosing to transfer uh, or enter the transfer portal at least. Where could he possibly end up? What does that leave as far as Alabama and the receivers left on the roster? Who's going to step up in and- Yeah. Oh, yeah. Markel Benton's another one. Uh, A great one, actually, to talk about. So we'll continue to talk about the guys who are entering the transfer portal. There's actually been a lot of players enter the transfer portal for Alabama since the end of the uh, end of the season. We'll talk a little bit about about that. Should Alabama fans be concerned or not? Uh, That's just some of the stuff we'll be talking about on the other side of the break. This is the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles. And we're back on the Bama Beat Podcast once again brought to
1: you. By wickles pickles Uh, wickles brings you the spice on top of the acidy pickling effect that you get by putting pickles on an item or relish on something or mixing pickles into something Uh, really everybody should be doing this right like throwing some spice in their life everybody everybody needs some and wickles is a great way to do it they have a sandwich spread pickles relishes okras much more all of the uh products are available on wicklespickles.com it's a family recipe that is 90 years in the making right here in the state of alabama so as people are starting to slowly work their way towards normal economic decisions again and they're wanting to strategically spend their money to people that might need it the most in in times like these wickles pickles is an in-state business uh do with that information what you will go to wicklespickles.com Wickles, pickles, let's get wicked. So, Alabama had a two day stretch in there where they had two different players enter the transfer portal.
0: They did. And it's actually been a pretty long list that now makes, I think, eight players since the end of the season. Who have, the list. Okay. You got Talia Tungavaloa, who has chosen, uh, he's going to Maryland. You got Jerome Ford, the former running back. He's going to Cincinnati. Scott Lashley, the offensive tackle. He's going to uh, Mississippi State. Yeah. Nigel Knott, He was actually medical. I don't think he could get approved to get back on the field with Alabama's training staff. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, East he's Carolina. gone. Yeah, he's going to East Carolina. Scooby Carter is a guy we don't know where he's going to end up. Right. Uh, Giles Amos, the former walk-on tight end. He's entered the transfer portal. He's seen a little bit of playing time. It's, it's kind of a popular walk-on uh, on the roster. And oh, then. Jesus. Say what? Shouts to Trailer Park Jesus. Absolutely. It, what a great nickname, by the way. I, I love that. Um, and then, of course, now you got Markel Benton and Tyrell Shavers. So that's okay. eight total players. Uh, I guess we'll just go ahead and, and ask this question and answer this question for the, for the listeners. Are you concerned about Alabama having some of you guys transfer out? It, <sighs> n-
1: no, because <sighs> – no because this is kind of how attrition works now like if, if this were happening 10 15 years ago then yes you you would be concerned but this is kind of how Alabama works its roster now because if you if you look back on recent rosters Alabama doesn't really have these huge Senior classes, scholarship-wise, like I think this year's team is going to have roughly eleven, and I was I was surprised to see that that's a pretty normal number year over year over year. So if you're only losing eleven scholarship seniors in in a class, give or take, and if you have on an average year, uh, Alabama's going to lose what maybe three or four guys early to the draft, maybe some years five or six, some years just two, but somewhere in that three to five range, early guys to the draft, right? Right, correct. So the, the normal ways of attrition, which are NFL draft and eligibility elapsing, Alabama's going to lose on average somewhere in the 15, in the maybe 14 to 17 range most years, right? Well, Alabama's constantly signing 22, 23, 24, 25-guy signing classes. So there's a pretty sizable gap there where there's a certain amount of attrition that has to take place for those recruiting classes to come in. And they're not leaving because their eligibility expires. They're not leaving because they're going to the NFL draft. That leaves them one option to transfer. That That's just kind of – how roster attrition works in, in college football these days. And I realize that's difficult for for fans who have more of a idealistic approach to the sport of, of school loyalty first and all that. And I also realize it's, it's difficult for people who grow attached to these players, be it in their recruiting processes or maybe they made a couple of plays in garbage time in their freshman year and they're looking forward to seeing the development and seeing that beast, that beast unleashed, easy for me to say, uh, over the course of a full season or more, but that's it's just, just kind of how the sport operates now. That's just how it works. That's how the numbers have to work to make a a college football roster at the highest level hit that 85 scholarship limit.
0: I completely agree with you. Um, and, and when you actually start diving into these guys who are leaving, does that hurt the depth at certain spots, sure. Um, I think that the main – you know, Markel Benton, that's a guy, you know, off-ball linebacker. Alabama's absolutely stacked at that position. Uh, they were, it was It's going to be hard to get the guys they still have on the, on the roster uh, all playing time, I and mean, there's several. I mean, when you talk about Dylan Moses, Christian Harris, uh, you know, Joshua McMillan, Shane Lee uh uh Ali uh, Keho is another guy you're talking about five different players and that, and Demoye Kennedy is a guy in the future who's probably going to be uh, a heck of a off-ball linebacker for Alabama but and he would probably be a starter uh, at at a lot of different even and maybe even SEC schools but for Alabama he might be the number 6 inside linebacker on the depth chart uh that's just where they're at at that spot when you talk about um, you know, Jerome Ford, you, the Alabama super stacked at, at uh, running back. You talk about offensive tackle. Scott Lashley would have been a pretty valued member as far as depth goes, but he, I don't think he was going to be a starter. Uh, Nigel Knott medically, he didn't really have a choice there. Your, your training staff or medical staff, excuse me, they didn't really clear him to return to the field for your program, so he needed to move on. The only one that I think really hurts, uh, I guess two, Scooby Carter, um, for whatever reason, entering and then you know pulling himself out of the transfer portal mul- multiple times, Alabama at cornerback uh, they could need a little bit more depth there. Uh, they're going to have to look to probably go the JUCO route for the second year in a row uh, at that spot just because of of guys who have ended up leaving or not panning out or you know there were some guys they missed on as far as the last recruiting class uh, goes. That's a spot, but then Tyrell Shavers to me. That was a big one, and granted, I understand it from his perspective. You know, he wants to try to go somewhere where not only he's kind of more locked into a starting spot, not rather than you know competing for the number three job, maybe not getting it, uh, and then also, you know, at, he could in, end up being maybe the number uh, up to maybe the number two option. Uh, I, one school that I've heard of that he has some interest in going to. I don't know if they're going to end up offering him a scholarship. Last I'd heard they hadn't, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did, uh, is Baylor. And they have a a pretty big hole there with Denzel Mims, another guy who's kind of got that Tyrell Shavers mold. Denzel Mims is a height, weight, speed kind of guy, can stretch you vertically and do a lot of different things with him that way. He's now off to the NFL after being a second-round pick. They have a void there, and so maybe he can go with Dave Aranda, the former LSU defensive coordinator, and they got Charlie Brewer, the quarterback, who is, you know, if he can stay healthy, is a a pretty good Big 12 quarterback, and anytime you're playing in the Big 12, it's going to help you as far as statistically and the numbers you can put up. So I think that would be a good fit, but for Alabama, um, I, I was curious to see how he emerged as far as, uh, where he ended up on the depth chart and what kind of playing time he got. Because being 6'6", 205 pounds right out of the gate, I mean, you're a guy that can go up and win 50-50 balls. You could be a red zone threat. But not only that, it could be a vertical threat despite having that size because not only is he a guy who can stretch you due to his length and, and he can go up and win contested catches, but also he runs you know, around a four four forty. I mean, that's blazing for a guy who's that big. And you know, I talked a little bit about when I was watching the uh, open practice last year during fall camp. Um, you know, that was open to the fans fan day. I actually had noticed that they were playing Tyrell Shavers a lot as far as being a big slot, letting him kind of attack the seams vertically. And I thought that was something that maybe Alabama might try to use last year. They didn't really need to, they run a lot of slants and things like that with the receivers that they already had on the roster. And you just didn't really get to see Tyrell Shavers play too much uh, and see what he can possibly do. I was kind of excited to see if that was a wrinkle they threw in this year. And now he's gone and, and, so I, I'll kind of bounce it back to you and let you talk about some of these guys who you expect to compete for that number three wide receiver role. Well,
1: before before we get to that, I, I want to bring up one more point about uh, concern for the amount of of transfers. I, I think I think it's possible that a lot of schools or almost all schools have this amount of transfer attrition. It's just that we don't hear about it uh, in our Alabama circle because when you look at the list of, of guys that, that have transferred, and, uh, and you ran through them, and they're guys like Terrell Shavers, who, I mean, you and I both thought was going to be on the outside looking in of the competition for the number three spot because we thought that was going to be John Mech in the third, and he was going to be kind of battling out for that number four. And then you look at Mark Benton, who at most was a dime linebacker for Alabama last year. And obviously that didn't look like that was going to change. Giles Amos. isn't someone who was going to, who is going to get a bunch of playing time at Alabama. uh, But he he knew that coming in, that's a a special circumstance. These are players who aren't necessarily the headline grabbing guys. And in the Alabama circle, that's news. It's probably the, the talk of the day on the message boards because, it's it's what they do but elsewhere like do you think a random Kansas State fan knows that Terrell Shavers and Mark Hale Benton entered the transfer portal in this, this week like do you, do you think they know that i don't like, i would doubt i would doubt that they do because they aren't the headline grabbing guys now they know they probably know when Talia Tongavaloa enters the transfer portal just cuz of the last name they probably know when Uh, who's a, who's a, they they probably know when JT Daniels enters the transfer portal and goes to Georgia for some inexplicable reason on, on both ends, (laughs) um, both ends of that transfer don't make any sense. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is I think all schools go through this, but we don't really see it on the micro local level. We don't really see it. Happening at other schools, because most often it is these guys that don't grab headlines. And I'm going to give you an example.
0: Do you know who Keon Wakefield is? Know the name, but I couldn't tell you where he's currently playing or what he's doing. Keon Wakefield,
1: by receptions and yards, was Louisville's sixth wide receiver last year. And he has transferred, according to 247, let me, uh, I pulled it, I pulled it away. He's transferred to West Virginia. Isn't that more or less perfectly the Terrell Shavers deal? Like a guy who's low on the receiving depth chart and kind of has a path to working his way up it, but maybe not all the way up it. I'm sure in Louisville with Cardinals fans, that was somewhat notable news. That's probably something they talked about on talk radio for the next day or two, much like. It was for Terrell Shavers and Markel Benton here, but we don't know that because Keon Wakefield isn't the kind of transfer that's going to grab the national headline and the national attention. So I, I think that's one example of where transfer problems may seem worse than they, than they actually are locally because you're aware of every transfer that happens with your team, but you're not aware of almost all of the transfers that happen elsewhere.
0: Yeah. And there's a reason, Um, you know, uh, when I first realized that 247 sports had a database where you could go on and they kind of re-rank a lot of the transfers, whether it be grad transfer or just transfers in general in the portal um, and kind of give them stars and things like that. It was very fascinating to go in there and look. And I just didn't realize that many guys were transferring. You hear the numbers. Uh, but it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around until you're in there looking at all the different quarterbacks who are available. And, and even before he ended up committing and going to Auburn, I think he's going to play receiver, but, uh, Kalen Newton, uh, Cam Newton's little brother. That was a right. guy that I was kind of scrolling down the, the guys who were in the transfer portal. I remember him going to a small school. I couldn't remember which one. Howard. Um, yeah, it was Howard. Uh, but I couldn't, re- you know, I kind of forgotten about him ever. You know, I remember he was a three-star quarterback and I was kind of surprised with him. I didn't watch really any of his tape. Um, but just seeing him in the transfer portal, I was like, man, first of all, I totally forgot he existed. B, uh, I, I had not heard at all that Cam Newton's brother had in, entered the portal. And I thought, just being, you know, I follow a lot of Auburn guys, uh, beat writers, and stuff on Twitter that's news that i don't even think they knew and just being you know when leah entered granted he was at alabama versus howard that makes it very different in, in itself but you know to a to a tongue of a little brother you know i thought that maybe cam newton's little brother would get a little bit more attention and i would have realized that and then you know lo and behold he ends up going to auburn and i thought he might play quarterback he's gonna play receiver it looks like but it, yeah you're absolutely right now granted Guys like Tyrell Shavers, he's probably going to command, and even a guy like Markel Benton, they're both going to command a little bit more attention. Maybe not from the masses, but um, from, you know, maybe more so locally, uh, SEC probably, because they were former top 100 guys, four star prospects, both of them. And and I think Benton was right there at uh, 100 overall. I think that, uh, you know, Tyrell Shavers was around somewhere in the 80 range. He was the number 12 wide receiver. But a, a program like Tennessee, who recruited both those guys pretty hard, uh-huh. You know, a lot of their beat writers are picking it up and sharing, hey, you know, maybe, you know, with uh, with, with Tennessee and, and Shavers, I haven't heard any kind of connection there. Uh, so I'm purely saying, you know, for, uh, as a hypothetical, but they have a huge need at wide receiver because they lost Marquez Calloway and Juwan Jennings. So, you know, you see a guy, the former top 100 prospect enter the portal from Alabama who you're very familiar with. Yeah, you hop on there probably and say, hey, you know, he's a grad transfer. He'll be immediately eligible. Maybe Tennessee will show, show him some interest. But outside of that, that's just you don't see that too much with, and you certainly don't see it if you're an Alabama fan as far as the incoming stuff because there's not a lot of guys who enter the portal who Alabama really wants to go after. They'll pick a, a select few guys. Carl Tucker this year, Landon Dickerson, Jacob Coker was another guy at one point. They'll identify needs and they'll go after guys for that reason. But A, Alabama for the most part has their starters kind of locked up. And so a lot of these guys who enter the portal don't want to go get buried on Alabama's depth chart. But then also, uh, I don't think Alabama shows a ton of these guys, a lot of interest. Now I'm sure if there are some grad transfer quarterbacks, uh, that's got a couple of years of eligibility, they might go out and try to see what they can do as far as would a guy be willing to, to make a move and be a backup at Alabama. That remains to be seen, but yeah, you make a very good point as far as the difference between incoming and outgoing, Uh, with these transfers, and I don't think it's a a cause for concern at all.
1: Uh, I have one more example just to to drive that point home. What does the name Brock Miller mean to you? Do you have any idea who Brock Miller is? No, I do not. He was fourth on last—he was actually tied for third on last year's NC State team in tackles for a loss, and he's now transferring to Boise State. Uh, Again, like, these are things that most people on the hyper-local Alabama level— don't know about uh, unless they have a friend that covers NC State or something, or has a buddy that's an NC State grad or something. They might hear about it that way, but that's big news in in is it NC State in Raleigh? Am I making that yep. up? No, uh, yeah, that, that's big news in Raleigh, or at least with NC State fans. But at Alabama, absolutely nothing because it doesn't grab the the national headlines. So I, I think the the fishbowl nature of college athletics and the fan bases therein can make average problems or small problems like uh, eight players entering the transfer portal since the end of the 2019 season seem bigger than they are because it's so hard to get context for some things in college football when you have 130 teams at the FBS level. Uh, So context isn't, is it easy to find, but when you have the context, it,
0: it, it paints Alabama's transfer attrition in a, in a better light. That fantastic point. Fantastic point. And, you know, hopefully the listeners feel a little bit easier about it. We've talked about recruiting and, you know, should fans be concerned with that where, you know, there are a lot of people pointing to a lot of different aspects. Oh, players are transferring out. Oh, you know, the recruiting isn't as good as it's been. Oh, they, they lost, Uh, you know, two games for the first time in forever. Oh, they didn't make the college football playoff for the first time. Oh, they haven't won a national championship in two years. Uh, There's so many things that people are pointing to, to make it seem like Alabama is, you know, the, the, the dynasty's dead and and is it starting to slow down at some point? It has to, we don't know when that, if that's here, I couldn't tell you. I'm what I'm certainly not going to do is tell you that it is happening because, just knowing Nick Saban in Alabama, they could go off and rip off another three consecutive national championships. You just don't know. But for the people who are overly concerned and they think, Oh, you know, it's finally here. It's finally over. Um, just because of some of these things that are happening, you know, it's very difficult to compete year in and year out for a national championship. And Alabama was competitive this year. They just missed the mark a little bit and didn't make the college football playoff, still finished the number eight overall team in the country. It's not like they dropped, you know, four or five games. Um, you know, I'll say this in their biggest down year and can kind of push your point their biggest down year. They came a lot closer to win a national championship than Michigan has in their best year, uh, under Jim Harbaugh. So, you know, kind of circling it back to that, that's the kind of comparison between yeah. where these two programs are at. Uh, if, if, if Michigan would have had the kind of season that Alabama just had, uh, Jim Harbaugh saying they came, you know, they're about as close as they possibly could to a national championship would make a whole heck of a lot more sense than what he's saying with where they're at right now. Uh, so, no need to, to overreact. Everything's gonna be fine. The world's not crashing or burning. And say what? It,
1: right so it might be
0: though. Well, oh, well, that uh, yeah. What a terrible analogy on my part or phrase to use <laughs> right now. And thanks for calling me out about it too. <laughs> so I did, didn't even think about. And it's kind of I'm laughing because of the ridiculousness of my you know my lack of awareness on, on using that, but it's, I I I, was kidding. I wasn't trying to throw you under the bus. I I was
1: kidding. So I'll, I'll let you record your sign off while I go pick up my fussing daughter.
0: Sounds good. All right, guys, well, this is going to do it for yet another episode of the Bama beat podcast. Uh, something that we want you guys to continue to do hop on iTunes, Spotify, any of that stuff where you can leave a review, leave us a five-star review. If you got a question, if you'll take a, a screenshot of you leaving a five-star review for us on one of those, uh, you know, places where you can send it to Brett or myself, and then ask your question. We'll make sure to address it on the podcast. That is still a very real thing. Um, and, and guys, we're continuing on this thing isn't slowing down. I know that Uh, that we've had just a couple episodes a week as far as the Bama beat, but that's kind of due to the off season. There's not as much to talk about. And we didn't have baseball and basketball and softball and all these other sports to really keep things consistent as far as the episodes. But, you know, rest assured, we're going to be back in Cecil. um, When we start being able to get back in the studio, where we can get everybody together. It'll be a lot easier to get Cecil involved with a lot more of these episodes. And he's, you know, we've already done position breakdowns for back in the spring we'll we'll do another round of it now that we know kind of how the rosters actually starting to shake out and things like that. Um, you know, you don't have to worry. We're going to give you guys updated position previews, and we're going to start doing uh, opponent previews. We've got a lot of stuff lined up for you guys. And once, you know, another big news that came out recently, Herb Jones has chose to, uh, you know, pull himself out of the NBA draft. He's going to be coming back. Once we hear the news one way or the other with John Petty, we'll probably get Hunter. Johnson and Cecil on a podcast and let them guys talk to you about kind of where we know Alabama's roster is at right now and how competitive they think it could be based off of those decisions. Uh, And so we're going to continue to be rolling out the content. So stick around for it. We appreciate you guys as always tuning in. This has been the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Hey, Emma,
1: calm down. You're okay. I promise. You're okay. You're, You're doing fine. You've got it pretty good in life. You do. (laughs) you
0: do I don't think she believes me hey I didn't either when I was young but I quickly learned man (laughs) the the decision making like the the lack of decisions that I had to make as a kid or at least important decisions it was just a matter of what I was going to try to convince my parents to let me eat that day (laughs) what toys I was going to play with I had a pretty damn good and I had no idea adulthood comes for us all it does it does